You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. This is Research for the Real World. I'm Sam Sims. I'm a lecturer at the UCL Institute of Education. And on today's episode, I'm talking to Sophia Demgen and Talia Isaacs, who are both associate professors working in the area of applied linguistics. Sophia's work is focused on mental health and healthcare, where she's interested in the language and discourse around depression, psychosis, vaccination, and cancer. She's also the program leader for the MA in Applied Linguistics. Talia's work is focused on language assessment and health communication, and she is an editorial board member of the journal Language Testing. Today, we're going to be discussing how we talk about some of the most important topics, including health and illness, as well as important issues around consent in healthcare and healthcare research. Sophia and Talia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. Sophia, Boris Johnson is fond of military metaphors to describe the battle against coronavirus. And I think he's talked before about putting Britain on a war footing and more recently about you know this, this image of the scientific cavalry coming over the hill with the vaccines to save us. You're an expert on the use of metaphor in language. So, I mean, let's start with the basics. What is metaphor? And then why do we tend to reach for it uh, for metaphors in cases like this, situations like this? Yeah, those are very good questions. So metaphor is something that is absolutely ubiquitous in language. It is basically when we talk about something in terms of something else, where some sort of similarity between the two things can be perceived. So if we're talking about sort of the the efforts that the government and and the National Health Service are going to roll out vaccinations, then there are aspects of that experience, for example, that um, there is a lot of effort involved. It requires organization. It requires people working together, people taking orders and carrying them out, which has a lot of similarity with what might happen in a war situation within the military with soldiers. And so this similarity that is perceived is sort of highlighted um, by talking about this national effort in terms of specific military language. And and why do you think, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned there that it's a sort of, you know, all pervasive aspect of the way humans communicate. You know, why, why do we reach for metaphors? What, what sort of purpose, what role do they play in language? There is a sense in which metaphors can communicate things much more vividly and they can they can sort of say more than the sum of the parts. Uh, so they can bring to the fore all these different connections that you would have to sort of lay out explicitly if you wanted to communicate the same sense of urgency, of collective effort required. And metaphor also tends to be used particularly frequently in circumstances or or in describing topics that are subjective, that are sensitive, 
um, that are somehow very personal or, or abstract. And often we then talk about these things in more physical terms. And this helps us, some would say, also to understand what's going on, but certainly also to communicate about it among each other. And Sophia, you've analysed the use of metaphor, including sort of battle-type metaphors, among cancer patients in, in your research in healthcare. How did you come to be interested in this subject? And, um, and what have you learned about why people use metaphors when talking about uh, subjects like cancer? So I've always been interested in language and communication in the context of health and illness. And after my PhD, I had the opportunity, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to join the Metaphor and End-of-Life Care Project, which was run uh, at Lancaster University. And as the title suggests, this project sought specifically to understand how metaphor is used in end-of-life care contexts, uh, as you said, by clinicians, but also by patients and by the informal carers who, who care for them. And so we focused in this context on metaphor specifically for the reasons that I outlined, that, that the experience of the end of life, and often that tends to go hand in hand with the experience of cancer, the metaphor is particularly appropriate for use in that context because the experience is so personal, it's so subjective, it's so different for every person, and it involves a lot of emotion, it's very abstract. So metaphor really does help to communicate about these types of experiences. And we were interested to see whether there were any differences between the different groups that we were looking at. We looked at interviews, we looked at online forum contributions for all three uh, participant groups. And we looked at metaphor in general, but actually we found a lot of war metaphors uh, being used. And that's in the context of war metaphors being quite controversial in and around cancer, certainly since the time of Susan Sontag, but potentially even before that. And there's been a lot of media attention on that in the same way that there is now media attention on the war metaphors around COVID. And nevertheless, we were finding war metaphors, among many other metaphors, that's crucial to point out, they were by no means the only ones, but we were finding a lot of war metaphors in particular used by cancer patients. And can you give us some examples of these, Sophia? Presumably this is, you know, people saying, you often hear on the news that so-and-so has lost their battle with cancer, for example. You know, what are some examples of the metaphors that get used by clinicians and patients in this sort of setting? So that would be one example. And that specific example is why the metaphor is so controversial and why it's often criticized. The war metaphor is very good at motivating, at suggesting the kind of effort and, and investment and energy that is required for these types of experiences. But it has the downside that if you, were, if you sort of follow the fa- framing through to the end, then if someone doesn't recover from cancer, then it, it suggests that they've lost the battle. And that's precisely what, you, what you've made explicit. But of course, that puts a, a degree of individual responsibility on the person that, that is not fair because most people can't choose uh, whether they recover from cancer or not. And so that's one, of the, that's one of the examples that's particularly problematic. But in particular among cancer patients, there were lots of metaphors such as soldier on everybody when people were communicating on an online forum. So they were using it explicitly to motivate themselves. There was one particular thread on the online forum that we were investigating, which was a thread explicitly dedicated to humor. So in the, in the very first post and in, in the title of the thread, it was made explicit that here we're joking about cancer. And if 
that's too bad, too sensitive for you, please don't come. And on this thread, the participants were developing all kinds of fantasy scenarios where they were each soldiers or members of an emergency extraction team. They would fight the hospital system. They would go and run rescue missions to bring people out of hospital. All of this hypothetical, of course. But they were each contributing. They were all their parts. Some of them would bring a tank, and this tank was actually someone's wheelie bin. And someone else would say, oh, we could use cotton wool as our ammunition. So there was a lot of warm framing, lots and lots of people contributing. But it was all because it was done collaboratively. It actually had the function of building a community, of allowing people the opportunities to see themselves in a particular light that they thought at that point in time was beneficial for them. It was fascinating. It was fascinating to observe. So I think one of the key messages to come out of that particular study was that it's not really about the metaphor. It's not a question of whether it is the war metaphor or the journey metaphor, which tends to get sort of suggested as an alternative. The journey metaphor can equally be used to suggest sort of disempowerment and a lack of choice that people have about which route they take, for example. Um, it's much more about who uses the particular metaphor, when, where, and how. And what is appropriate in one context or for one person will be different from one day to the next. Where did you sort of take the results of this research? Did you sort of go and talk to clinicians about this afterwards and sort of discuss the way that they use metaphor? Well, we did. We, we spoke at uh, various sort of public engagement events. We spoke at hospices, training events. Um, some members of the team spoke at Cancer Research UK. Uh, so we, we have taken this uh, in lots of different directions. But I suppose another key thing to have come out of, um, of the research was that there is such a variety of metaphors out there that people draw on because it helps them express what they're feeling. Uh, and the, the sort of public debate around metaphors and cancer tends to focus very much on the battle metaphor versus the journey metaphor. And actually, a really, really important thing is that we need to provide people with options. As many metaphors as possible should be on the table because the feelings around this experience are just so complex and different metaphors are useful for highlighting and backgrounding different aspects. So one of the sort of more exciting things that, that came out of it, which, which is also sort of a physical product, is something that we've called a metaphor menu. And this is exactly what it says on the tin. So it's a metaphor menu. It's a menu like you would have in a, in a restaurant, which lists different kinds of metaphors that we either came across in our different data sets, often used by cancer patients themselves, but also metaphors that people who came into contact with our work, who took part in our engagement activities, actually then volunteered and contributed to us. So they may have had cancer in the past, or they may know someone who had cancer, and these were metaphors that they found helpful for one way or another. And we collected all of this into, into a little menu. Before COVID, the use of the menu was sort of being trialed in the north of England in an oncology clinic. And we also introduced it at the ESRC Festival of Social Sciences. The idea with this is that it could be something that is lying around in oncology clinics in the waiting rooms while people are waiting to see their doctors. And the hope is that they might pick it up, leaf through it, and it would inspire them to be able to put into words how they're feeling on that particular day, on that particular occasion. Because often it is really difficult to do. So we felt that if we could provide a range of options, 
perhaps there will be something amongst them that will resonate with that person in that moment. Yeah, so almost expanding uh, people's vocabulary of metaphors that's available to them to, yeah, as you say, express the way that they are feeling about their experience. That's remarkable. Thanks for sharing that. So just going back to COVID for a minute, I mean, Boris Johnson's scientific cavalry have now come over the hill in quite a big way in terms of, you know, providing us with, uh, you know, scientific findings and trial results on the efficacy of different vaccines and so on. And as I understand it, the UK is has done a comparatively good job of setting up these big trials to test these new vaccines and recruiting lots of participants into these trials to actually, you know, provide us with those, uh, the crucial data and, and the findings. And of course, this all rests on people willing to take part in these trials. And so, you know, that recruitment process and, and the important sort of aspects of consent for participating in those trials is, is a critical part of the way we do science. And uh, Atalia, I know that you and Sophia are working together on a project kind of investigating how we go about getting informed consent from people in in trials. Could, could you just set out for us briefly what it means to recruit somebody into a clinical trial and, and the importance of consent in that process? Sure, yes. Um, this was um, an article published in the journal Health that included also, in addition to Sophia, Jamie Murdoch at the University of East Anglia and uh, Fiona Stevenson, who's at UCL in primary care and population health. Maybe I'll, I'll just tell you a bit about uh, a couple of anecdotes that got me interested in this area of health communication, generally speaking, and specifically recruitment into trials in the ethical dimension. So I lived in the French-speaking province of uh, Quebec, Canada in my 20s and early 30s, and that was before I moved to the UK. And my experiences were not cancer-related, but at a time in my life when I was feeling quite invincible, so in my early 20s, I became ill for a full year for a condition that baffled doctors and took months to diagnose. English is my first language and my French was pretty good, but I was really challenged to try to function in French. It was my non-dominant language. I found conveying and understanding, you know, descriptions of symptoms like having an enlarged spleen or elevated platelet count uh, was difficult. And of course, um, this difficulty is compounded due to the emotive element uh, when trying to function in a second language when you're a patient and are feeling so very vulnerable. Uh, a few years later, when thankfully I'd recovered from that condition, I was diagnosed with an unrelated chronic condition. I managed it pretty well, but at the time of being diagnosed, I was quite devastated and was trying to process what, what it meant. And so during the appointment, before I knew what was happening, the physician picked up the phone and said, good news, we have another one for you. And he passed on my details to a person who I now understand must have been the trial manager. This was not an ethical way to recruit patients to trials. I think he was quite delighted that I'd been diagnosed because that meant that there was one more patient that could be involved in, in a trial, which needs a large sample size in, a, in order to have enough statistical power. But of course, you know, I was quite confused. And ultimately, my mother convinced me not to participate in the trial as I'd only just been diagnosed. We didn't know whether um, I had a mild or severe case. And she suggested that I try the conventional treatments first. And so I think these experiences have really shaped my research and ideas in the area of recruitment to trials. 
here we've got a trial for pre presumably some sort of new treatment for the for the chronic condition that you had, where they're going to test out some new pharmaceuticals or some new treatment regime. And your experience was that they were seeing you as a data point for the trial rather than, you know, as a person who's dealing with, you know, news about a new illness and all the sort of emotional uh, impact that comes with that, right? Yeah, exactly. You've summarized that really well. Okay. And so, so how did you go from there to, uh, you know, doing academic research about the way in which we communicate uh, with people around trials and consent and recruitment and so on? Well, that's interesting. I'm, so I'm part of um, the uh, Trials Methodology Research Partnership for the NHR and MRC. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny, I, it's quite a, I would say, not a very linear process falling into this area of research. So I was interested from my anecdotal experiences, and then I sort of got to grips with the trials methodology community and the fact that language was part of the problem in and the, the high communication demands in, in terms of informed consent. So that became an area of great interest to me. And um, so I've become involved in the in trials methodology community in that way. Okay. And can, can you talk more about this idea of consent? Because this is really fundamental, isn't it? Yeah. So informed consent really is an ethical imperative in all research that involves human participants. And certainly the stakes for understanding what's involved in research are particularly high for cancer patients due to the invasive treatments that might be involved. For example, you could think of a mastectomy or sometimes the very difficult side effects, for example, in chemotherapy treatments. So patients need to understand the conditions of participating in that research study and also the potential implications of participation, things like the degree of risk that might be involved, uh, the likelihood of eradicating the, the cancer, potentially prolonging one's life, et cetera. These are all things that need to be described, you know, in, in the consent form and information sheet. Now, sometimes trials only really provide the only treatment option for cancer patients. So it's very important that patients know what they're signing up for, um, certainly for all research, but as I've said, particularly in the case of trials. But the language in the informed consent documents is highly complex. So for trials, you've got terms that are specific to, in the case of randomized control trials, which are viewed as the gold standard in health intervention research, got the randomization element and then certain aspects that are specific to design features of trials. So it can be difficult to explain, for example, terms like arm of a trial or placebo or control group, when we put that to patient representatives, one patient representative thought a control group meant that, you know, it was somebody being very controlling of you. So these are terms and concepts that are quite opaque to patients. In addition to this, there's also the legal aspect of informed consent, right, that these documents serve sort of a regulatory compliance function and are intended to sort of protect against lawsuits. 
And then, of course, there's the medical language that is used. So specific medical terminology really can compound the uh, linguistic complexity in terms of the information that needs to be conveyed in documents that are intended to help patients make informed decision about whether or not they want to participate in a trial. And of course, these challenges are compounded for patients for whom English is not a dominant language and when the trial materials are not offered in their preferred language. Um, So this led to our study where we wanted to examine the nature of language demands in informed consent documents, so in patient information sheets and then the consent form that help patients make that decision about whether or not to participate in the trial and what is involved. And part of the impetus for the study was that a lot of research in clinical trials and trials methodology only have looked at surface measures of the language that's used. For example, the total number of words or a measure of word count and a measure of readability. And those measures only take into account word and sentence level, and they're only word and sentential. So we wanted to get at the semantic meaning and to understand the complexity of the broader discourse. So in order to do that, we used a computational tool called Cometrics to analyze different dimensions of textual ease or language complexity. And we analyzed this for the patient information sheets separately from the consent forms because of the different functions that these documents have. So patient information sheet is to really tell the patient what's going on and describe to help them make an informed decision. And then the consent form is to help them affirm that they want to participate in the trial. So we compared these documents to graded readers for science textbooks. So looking at the language, we needed to have an established benchmark. And so we looked at graded science textbooks. And the American Medical Association recommends that written health materials not exceed a sixth grade reading level. And the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH, recommends, and this is both bodies in the United States, recommends uh, maintaining a seventh to eighth grade level. So uh, this is roughly in line with what Uh, the reading level that would be expected for the average American. So we were interested in comparing the language complexity of these graded readers at sort of sixth to eighth grade level in the first instance to see whether they were roughly on par. So a sixth to eighth grader for uh, people listening in England or internationally, this is sort of 11, 12, 13 year olds, something like that. Yeah, something like that. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, so basically we, we tried to compare six to eight, but these were sort of U.S. based graded readers that we used. But yeah, the idea is, is, is exactly that. So we wanted these graded readers to be on par with, I mean, we wanted to see whether the language use was on par for the graded readers and the language complexity that is recommended in informed consent documents. And for comparative purposes, we also looked at grade 11 plus. So we had to go to these graded readers because they were benchmark and science was not perfect, but it was the closest benchmark that we had. Um, We could have chosen uh, a literary genre, but we we went with science for this. So that was useful. And then we looked at the nature of the language that was used on you know, several different dimensions. Um, So for example, we looked at narrativity. So how much does the text communicate a story, an event, or a procedure in conversational style? So in a style that resembles actual speech. Talia, would you take narrativity to be a positive aspect? Is this something that we should be aiming for to try and sort of 
clearly communicate in clinical settings. These are measures that are thought to contribute to the difficulty of the text. So a text that would in these I think the appropriateness of the measures is a, an important question, and it's one that we didn't really look at for the uh, information sheet and the consent form. But what I can tell you is that these measures have been applied to, for example, graded readers in for high school students, for example. And so you would want, uh, so a text that would score well for narrativity uh, would be one that is more conversation-like. What did you find, Talia, about, uh, you know, the complexity of these messages? How did they compare to these age sort of benchmarked textbooks from the U.S. that you were comparing them to? Yeah. So uh, the main finding was that these were highly complex texts. These were approaching university level sort of graded uh, science texts on several textees dimensions. So on several of these dimensions, they, the difficulty level far exceeded what we would expect uh, for, you know, the general public to be able to understand. And there were different text complexity profiles for both of the genres. So for the patient information sheets, there seemed to be high level of narrativity, which at first glance suggested greater text ease. And it seems that there are quite a few narrative elements. For example, doctor, patient, nurse, participant, those name the actors in the story. Then you've got the setting, hospital, office, and you know that can set the scene for the action. So this would positively contribute to the narrativity compared to, for example, discussing scientific concepts or processes involving inanimate objects in science texts that are far removed from everyday conversation. But there's a caveat here, which is that the uh, narrativity algorithm, so the automatic narrativity measure that's used, can't prioritize which concepts are most crucial for these informed consent documents and which ones are less important. And so this, you know, for example, the automated measures don't take into account words that have multiple meanings. So for example, a word like study, you know, maybe you would think of a a den or some area where you're doing work, (laughs) you know, rather than participating in a research study. A trial arm, the computer might pick that up as meaning literally a limb on somebody's body rather than one of the things, one of the treatments that's going to be tried out on the patients in the uh, in the trial. Yeah, that's a great example. And then, of course, the word trial is also um, one that the the algorithm wouldn't pick up, right? Because it would probably think of a legal trial. Uh, So the secondary meanings certainly are not what is intended. And so we think that those uh, probably inflated the uh, narrativity score, making it seem simpler than it actually is. What we did next was we compared the patient information sheets and consent forms to a general corpus of written British English. And we wanted to see which words were overrepresented or used more frequently in these genres and in the information sheet and consent form compared to in general British English. And we found that there was an overuse of you So the second person pronoun there, you, you would have an overuse of you plus an uncertain modal verb in the information sheets. So you can, you may, you might, and inferring the meaning was not very straightforward, Uh, you know, certainly requires quite a lot of nuance. And then often these were followed by the word uh, or preceded by the word if, 
for example, if you would like. So there was a very heavy processing load associated with this, making it very difficult to interpret the intended meaning. And in contrast, the consent forms had sort of these statements of affirmation. I understand that. So there is, you know, statements where really there isn't much ambiguity. You're affirming that you uh, consent to these conditions. And it's using the first person I, whereas for the um, information sheets, it's uh, you know, the, the you pronoun that's used maybe could be quite confusing to patients, whether you is used or I is used. So, Sophia, what do you think the implications of this study are for, you know, people designing trials, recruiting people into these important medical trials? How can we do it better, given all the constraints around needing to sort of take the legal boxes and make sure we include the right information? I think that there is a lot more research that needs to be done in order to be able to uh, sort of give a bullet point list of, of recommendations. And we, we were pushed to try and provide these recommendations in the study, but but we tried to steer clear of that simply because, as, as Talia described, it was a small data set. It was specific to one type of trial for cancer. And so there is a lot more work that needs to be done, but it needs to be done really at the at the semantic, the meaning level and the discourse level, not just looking at the sort of automatic measures that could be applied, because as Talia described, they're all problematic and you kind of need a lot of a lot of understanding of what's actually being counted and, and is that valid for the particular document that, that we're looking at. But but it is really a fertile ground for further research and, and not just in the UK. Because problems with gaining valid consent are, are not just restricted to the UK, they're particularly salient in highly international societies which exist around the world. But how exactly recruitment to trials works in relation to language criteria and, and how these issues are best addressed differs around the world. So one of the things that we will be doing later this year, um, Tali and I, is actually uh, capitalizing on a sort of budding international collaboration um, that we've got going, namely our partnership in the International Consortium for Communication and Healthcare, or IC4CH. And we'll be discussing this work with our international audiences in a webinar. We'll talk a little bit about our findings, but we will also be really keen to hear about the nature of this issue in other geographical locations and to understand exactly what and how we might be able to translate across contexts and across uh, settings. So we are, we are really looking forward to, to doing that. And, and there are a couple of other projects sort of in the works that will be taking some of these issues further. That's great. It sounds like really, you know, important research. Yeah, I mean, we can't do these trials without participants, and we can't have participants without, you know, truly informed consent. So this is super important stuff. Uh, Sophia, Talia, it's been super thought-provoking talking to you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thanks very much. So you guys can find out more about... Sophia and Talia's research by following at Sophia Demgen, Z-S-O-F-I-A-D-E-M-J-E-N, on Twitter, and likewise Talia at Talia Isaacs, T-A-L-I-A-I-S-A-A-C-S, or you can follow the UCL Applied Linguistics Research Centre at UCL Applied Ling. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to address in future interviews, follow the links in the show notes and you can record your question there using voice or text. And if you enjoyed the podcast today, there are eight seasons of conversations with IOE researchers, 
all of which are available from wherever you get your podcasts. And as an added bonus, you can find the Research for the Real World playlist featuring tracks contributed by previous guests and producers. Again, follow the links in the show notes to Spotify. I'm Sam Sims, and this has been Research for the Real World. Goodbye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 